Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Ken Berry. Dr. Berry is a board-certified family physician who has practiced for over a decade in a rural town of Tennessee. His practice focuses on prevention and optimization care with treatment of obesity and chronic diseases caused by the standard American diet, a central focus of his treatment paradigm. He is the author of the book, Lies My Doctor Told Me, Medical Myths That Can Harm Your Health. Ken, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So um, first up, your, your title, that's really catchy, I've got to say. Um, Thank you very much. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it it caught my attention, and I, I, you know, I do a lot of reading online, and uh, no, I, I definitely would say, oh, why? What what lies did my doctor tell me? So, um, no, I, I liked it, and of course, the, I think the content in the book is uh, is also very useful for people, and that's what we're we're going to talk in a little bit about today. Um, so that would be my first question. Um, why did you write the book um, that would actually upset a lot of doctors? Hmm. I I wrote the book because I was an upset doctor for multiple reasons. Uh, each reason is, is almost a chapter. Each chapter in the book is another reason that I was upset as a practicing physician. Um, when you go through medical school and residency training, you are like a starstruck puppy. Everything that every doctor teaches you is gospel in your mind. You have no reason to doubt these people and you have no reason to second guess anything that they tell you. And so you're just like a uh, tabula rasa sponge, so to speak. You soak it all up. You don't question it. You don't double check it. You don't fact check. You just, you just soak it up. You try to soak up as much as possible. Right. And then you, then you put it into practice. And so there's really no point where a medical student or even a, a training resident physician has an opportunity to go, wait, what's that based on? Wait a minute. Where, what research are you basing what you just told me on? First of all, that would be uh, severely frowned upon. You can imagine. Mm. And secondly, we just don't have time as medical students and interns and residents. We don't have time to get our jobs done, much less to question and to research and to study. And so many of these things I actually heard in my residency training and I sort of filed them away for later research because I didn't have time to look into them at that time. And I've always been a bit of a, an, an iconoclast and a, an authority questioner. And so that's kind of in my nature. And so when I would get time, I would go back and look up one of these lies. And, and sometimes I was wrong. Sometimes they were exactly right in what they had told me. But then oftentimes what they had told me was either based on no research. So we go back to the coin flip, right? You know, if there's no research to back this up, then that's basically just your opinion. Um, or I would find out that there's actually research showing that what they said is patently false. But yet they were teaching this to us as medical gospel. And uh, so that that was that's kind of the motivation of why I actually wrote the book. And I would be talking to my friends about this stuff. And they I kept hearing over and over, man, this is good stuff. You should just write a book. And so, uh, you know, after hearing that a few times, I thought maybe I should write a book. <laughs> yeah. And um, 
that that sort of brings me on to my next question when it comes to your your training your curriculum um how much uh training is the, the typical medical degree in nutrition itself so i went to a state university which is i think i think that would be the fairly typical uh, medical school or, or physician training in the U.S. Uh-huh. I'm sure that there are some Ivy League institutions who have different methods, but I think overall, the, what I received was the standard of care, so to speak, of training a doctor and training a resident physician. Uh, and so we had no class ever that was called health. We had no class that was called prevention. We had one class that was called nutrition, and it was uh, half a semester. And I think we met once or twice a week for uh, 30 minutes or an hour. It was, it was virtually, it, it was a smaller class than most of my undergraduate classes I had taken before I got into medical school. And so to give you an example of the weight, um, gross anatomy, which is one of the very first classes you take, the courses you take in medical school was, uh, either 12 or, or 15 semester hours. And so typically, as an undergraduate in the U.S., you would take 12 or 15 hours of study. As a, That would be a full-time undergraduate or college uh, course load. And then when we get into medical school, gross anatomy alone is as many semester hours as our entire semester we were taking to get into medical school. And then we also had uh, cell and molecular biology and this and that and behavioral science and all these other things. So, So really, the first semester of medical school was like taking about 36 hours when most of us were used to taking at very most 18 hours. And I think nutrition was a one or a two hour course. So that kind of gives you a a sense of the weight that it received. So if you made an A plus in your nutrition class and you made a C in gross anatomy, the A in nutrition wouldn't even bump your your C one-tenth of a point when you averaged up your GPA because it was such a trivial size class, both in uh, the GPA weighting and in the content that we were given. Yeah. And I think the reason I brought that up is because, you know, a lot of people are seeking advice from their doctors and diets is always a big thing, but then people will go see their family physician and the, and the doctor will tell them, no, you shouldn't eat that diet. But <laughs> it's kind of funny because then in a way to think, well, what, you know, as you said, how much training have you had? Are you truly a master in understanding nutrition? And you're trying to tell exactly. me I can or can't do something? Exactly. And so that's why I chose the title lies that you, your doctor told you, not medical myths or medical misstatements, because it's my belief that when you put yourself out to the public as a licensed uh, expert in human health, I mean, the part of the health of any organism is a huge part of that is its diet, Mm. is its nutrition, right? You can't put yourself out there as an expert in dog health if you don't know anything about dog nutrition. That would be silly, right? Mm -hmm. And so how are doctors going to put themselves out there and say, hey, I am an expert in the the care and the, the treatment of the human organism, but I don't really, I didn't really get any training about human nutrition but i'm still going to give you my opinion about human nutrition Mm. and at that point that that opinion in my belief becomes a lie because like i I use the analogy if you're if your hairdresser tells you oh you should eat more whole grains and you take her advice then that's your fault 
because she's not a trained authority in any way on the care and maintenance of the human organism. She just fixes hair. But if a doctor or a nutritionist or a dietitian tells you that, then you have every right as a patient to believe them. Mm-hmm. Right? That makes sense? Yeah. And so that that makes it more than just, oh, well, I didn't really, I didn't know what I was talking about. I guess I, I misspoke or I, I'm sorry I misled you. No, I put myself out there as a, a health and nutrition expert as, when I say I'm a physician. And so if I don't know about nutrition, I need to either shut up and refer you to someone who does or I need to get busy and learn the things that I was not taught in medical school. And so that's kind of what I did over the last 13 years is I, I quickly realized I don't know what the hell I'm talking about when it comes to diet, because the the advice that I've been giving my patients for the first few years of my practice, when I applied it to my own self, it didn't work at all. And I and at that point, that was kind of my wake up call of, oh, yeah, OK, doc, you don't know what you're talking about. So you either need to shut up or you need to learn so you can help these people reach their their weight loss, their health goals. Otherwise, you need to stop giving nutrition advice. That that was my own conversation with myself. Because mm. Yeah, that was that's what got me thinking is what inspired you yourself? Uh, there's usually either like a particular case that you had to deal with or an event or even a personal story um, that would make you think. And I'm also interested because you seem to be um, also quite happy to promote like a low carbohydrate, higher or healthy fat kind of diet or even a ketogenic type diet. Um, yeah, what? Was there something that inspired you to go more down that route of nutrition? Yeah, there was a special case that inspired this, and that was my own case. And I kind of hinted at that earlier. Uh, All my life, I'd been an athletic, slender fellow. And after I graduated from med school, went through my residency, and I started to practice in this small, rural Tennessee town, I was very busy with practice. I was, you know, getting a family going and doing all those things. And at that same time, my metabolism kind of shifted down a gear, so to speak, and I started gaining weight. My triglycerides started going up. My A1C started going up. My inflammatory markers started going up. And at that point, I'm I'm not the kind of guy who's going to tell you as I smoke a cigarette, hey, you shouldn't smoke. That's just not my style. That's not how I do things. And so I was not about to ever be that doctor who would walk into the exam room with my gut hanging over my belt and say, oh, by the way, you need to lose some weight. I'm just, that's not my style. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to either lead by example or I'm going to let somebody else do it. And so I thought, well, I can't be the fat doctor who, you know, I'm telling people they need to lose weight and they're snickering as I turn my back because they're like, yeah, okay, dude, look at you. (laughs) Right. And so I thought, well, I've got it. I must've forgotten some stuff about nutrition, you know? So I crawl up in the attic and I go to get all my nutrition notes together so I can do a review and, and figure out what I'm doing wrong. And you're, you know, the people watching may think, oh, he probably came down the attic stairs with this huge, big, you know, tomes, medical books and all these notes. But everything that I brought down, I could easily fit between these two fingers. That was the entirety of my nutrition education. And so I thought, well, okay, it must, you know, it must be pretty simple. There wasn't much to that. And so I go through all my notes. I read the book again. And I apply everything that I refreshed myself on. And I, after I applied that to my health, I started jogging. I started eating tons more whole grains. I really cut back on the fat, especially the saturated fat. And I put all that into practice. And then about a month later, two months later, I jumped on the scale and I'd gained 10 more pounds. 
And it was at that point where I basically looked in the mirror and said, dude, you don't know what the hell you're talking about when it comes to human nutrition. Obviously, you can't even fix your own fat gut. How are you even how do you even hope to help other people with obesity, with insulin resistance, with diabetes, with hypertriglyceridemia, if you can't even get the weight off your own belly? And it was at that point that I started looking outside the box, so to speak, and started looking at other diets, uh, diet books that other doctors had written. Uh, I happened, I, you know, I, I looked at the Ornish, I looked at the Weight Watchers, I looked at the Jenny Craig, I looked at the, all those different guys, and they were all basically the same thing that I'd been taught in, in med school, so I knew they weren't going to work. Then I found a tattered copy of the Atkins Diet. Uh, I think revolution, an old tattered paperback at a rummage sale that I got for, for, uh, 50 cents. And I read that and it was completely backwards to everything I'd ever been taught in medical school. And I thought, well, what I'm doing isn't working at all. So maybe this is closer to being on point. And then I, uh, kept reading, kept researching, and I found a book called the primal blueprint by Sisson. And then I found the paleo diet by Cordain and those two books together laid the bedrock for what is currently my advice I give to patients about nutrition. And you're right. I have no qualms about recommending those. And then I, it's kind of culminated in a, uh, a low carb, high fat, or even a ketogenic diet that I recommend to most patients, especially the ones who are trying to lose a significant amount of weight. And uh, so that's kind of how I came to that. And when I started, when I implemented what I learned in the primal blueprint, and the paleo diet, I immediately, you know, within a, a month's time, I'd lost the 20 pounds. I lost another 10 pounds. I had my triglycerides had returned to normal. My A1C had returned to normal and my inflammatory markers had all returned to normal. I'd lost my gut. I felt great. I could actually tie my shoes without getting short of breath anymore. Uh, my chronic heartburn was gone. My chronic dandruff was gone. My chronic allergies were gone. When I implemented this ancestral slash primal slash paleo diet. And so I tell many patients, I think you're free to hang out in that paleo ancestral area once you meet your goals. But if you're trying to significantly lose weight and affect your numbers in the lab work, you probably need to go ketogenic at least for a while and maybe permanently, just depending on your individual case. Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know i think we always learn the most when we do it on ourselves that's when true learning yes. occurs because yes. you think oh yes. okay that theory was this but actually i i see like practically it's not easy or it's not sustainable or i'm not getting the results that the books are saying that how you know something's mm -hmm. not quite right here so exactly yeah and, and uh, part of the terrible the part of the terrible thing that doctors do to patients if I hadn't went down this path myself, because I used to be the very doctor that would sit in the exam room and tell people, it's easy. All you have to do is burn more calories than you eat. It's easy. Boom. End of story. Why are you having so much trouble with this? But then when it happened to me, I quickly realized, oh, that formula doesn't really work <laughs> at all. And so I had to I had to revamp that. And so it's really sad <clears throat> for patients who, you know, they have a fat doctor as their nutrition advisor. Because what information could he possibly give them that's going to help them? And I say that because I've actually talked to people before about why, why are there fat doctors? And I think that's a valid question. Jason Fung talks about this. You know, doctors are obviously very hard workers and, and don't give up or we wouldn't have got into medical school and we wouldn't have finished medical school. So you can't say we're lazy people because we've proven that we're not. 
And then if you, you know, we, we were taught the state of the art about human nutrition in medical school, right? If you believe that, then of course we were. And I passed my nutrition class. And so I, I should be able to give you the best nutrition advice in the world. And I also should not myself be overweight or obese. That shouldn't happen unless I have one of those one in a million metabolic disorders, which I don't have. So why was I a fat doctor? Either I was somehow lazy and still snuck through medical school, which is by far the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Or I just didn't have the correct knowledge for myself, much less for my patients. And so I think if anybody out there happens to be an overweight physician, yeah, I'm talking right to you. How do you even think you can walk in an exam room and with a straight face tell a patient what they need to do to lose weight or to lower their triglycerides? You're, that's, a, that's farcical. You need to stop that. Mm. You need to fix your own diet, fix your own health, lead by example. Yeah. And that's what I would say to the, the doctors. And, uh, and I'm sure your patients are a little bit blown away when you say you don't have to exercise yourself thin. Because yeah, no. the exercise is not the is not the main component for helping you minimize the weight. Absolutely not. Yeah, there are multiple very large research studies that were very well, well done that prove that beyond any shadow of a doubt. If you're actually looking at those studies at that part of those studies, uh, exercise is great for humans in hundreds mm -hmm. of ways. It's wonderful for us. We should all exercise. But so many people join the gym around the new year with their resolution to lose weight. And that's the one thing they do. And they are destined to do two things, waste money and not lose weight, because that never works and it never will. And so, you know, any doctor that says, oh, you just got to exercise more. He just wasted that patient's time and money because they're going to go join the gym and it's not going to help them lose weight at all. So you see, the, again, right back to why I chose the word lies instead of myths. Um, I was going to publish this with a publishing house and they wanted me to change the word lie to myth. And I you know, considered it because it'd be a lot easier to not have to self-publish this. But I said, no, no, that word needs to be lies because in my estimation, that's what it is. If I'm telling a patient, yeah, go to join the gym and, and work out four days a week and you'll lose weight. That's a big fat lie. That doesn't help them a bit. It wastes their money. It wastes their time. And I didn't help them at all with what they came to see me for. Mm -hmm. yeah and that's why i say it's a very catchy title so um maybe myths wouldn't have caught my eye as much as the word lie exactly right yeah. and it would also have been a cop-out you know it would have been a, a compromise and mm. I, I don't really i'm not a, i don't compromise much so if it, if it needs to be said i'm going to say it okay yeah, and um so i'm also interested i've had um well a, a lot of uh sort of low carb and ketogenic typed um guests on the show and a common question that does come up, and this will be interesting because you see patients in practice, when you put someone on a low-carbohydrate diet or on a higher-fat diet, or um, do you notice a percentage of people's cholesterol numbers go up? Some do. Yeah, not yeah. all, but some do. And I don't worry about that because I don't think there's any meaningful research that shows that that transient elevation uh, in lipid numbers translates into an increased risk of heart attack or stroke. And a lot of people, they forget what we're, what we're doing here. We don't care about your, your blood pressure just for the sake of caring about that number. We don't care about 
your A1C just for the sake of caring about that number. We care about them because they've been put out there as numbers that predict things. Mm -hmm. So uh, elevated blood pressure, that increases your risk of heart attack or stroke or kidney damage, right? So that's why we care about that number, and that's why we try to lower that number. Same goes for your blood sugars and your hemoglobin A1C. If that number is elevated, that increases your risk of hundreds of medical complications, right? That's why I want to lower that number, not just to treat that number. But the cholesterol, especially the total cholesterol, has it was basically put out there with no real, true, meaningful research. And doctors for the last 20 years have been trying to treat that number and get that number down. But when you look at the research studies, that number is actually inversely related to mortality. So with, what I'm trying to say is, is that the higher your cholesterol number is, the less likely you are to die of all causes. And that's been proved in more than one very, very large medical study. And so at that point, you have to question the entire lipid theory of heart disease is, is any of it even true? And so it, I, I don't believe it is. And that's why I have no problem if somebody has a transient elevation in their, in their total cholesterol or their triglycerides while they're adapting to a ketogenic diet. I don't think that gives me any meaningful medical information that I should act on to protect that patient from risk. Mm. And the reason I bring this up is because I think the total cholesterol number is what people tend to harp on, especially when they go see their family physician or their GP. It's not the LDL, it's not the triglycerides. It's always, oh, my, my cholesterol was mm -hmm. just one number. Mm -hmm. And that's why right. I got put onto a prescription. I always think, oh, you, that's, you don't just mm -hmm. go on that one number. You're mm -hmm. missing out so much that's information right. here. Exactly right. Yeah. And, um, but I think it would be interesting for someone who's practicing how to sort of deal with that situation because you are having patients who come in who probably might get freaked out by a certain number mm -hmm. and think, oh, no, I've gone, I've gone a little bit over what the media is telling me I should be. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to have an, a heart event now. And it's like, yeah. no, no, don't worry. It's okay. Let me explain it. Uh, earlier today, we're actually – the reason I'm so casual today is because we had a snow day. We had about two inches of ice and four inches of snow on top of that. So our, our little town is, is for all practical purposes, shut down. Okay. So I didn't go into, into the office today. Uh, but I was doing a, an a, a online visit with a lady, and she had, uh, she had type 2 diabetes, she had hypertension, and she had high cholesterol. And so she went ketogenic, not by my doings, but on, she found it on her own accord, and she was just asking me about some other things today. And so over the last year, she has cured her type 2 diabetes and stopped two medicines that she was taking for that. She has cured her hypertension or high blood pressure, and she stopped taking the medicine for that. But in the process of all this, her total cholesterol has actually went up some. And that has her doctor completely freaking out and trying to get her to take a statin because her total cholesterol went up. And so she had all her labs and she emailed them to me and we were, I was looking at them as we talked virtually like you and I are, and I are talking now uh -huh. and her hemoglobin A1C, her diabetes indicator went from 7.6 down to 5.3, which is a, a home run. I mean, that's wonderful. That slashes her risks of, of heart attack, stroke, and so many other medical complications. Her blood pressure had went from 150 over 90 down to the 130s over 70s. 
which is also wonderful, slashing her risk from all these medical issues. And then her total cholesterol, it went from 210 to 230, I think. But her, her HDL had doubled. So all the increase was coming from the increase in her HDL from eating the ketogenic diet. And so this is how I, I'd explained it to her. I said, okay, diabetes is a shotgun, right? High blood pressure is uh, a BB gun, a pellet gun. And then the cholesterol is a rubber band. Okay, so your choices are you can get shot with a shotgun or shot with a pellet BB gun, or I can shoot you with the rubber band. Which do you pick? Obviously, we'd pick none, none of the above. But if you had to pick one, you'd pick the rubber band. And so in my estimation, my learned opinion, her correcting her diabetes was like taking the shotgun off the table, which is wonderful, right? Because, mm. you know, the, the BB gun and the rubber band are never going to kill you. They might cause some harm, but they, they're really not going to mess you up like diabetes. And then when she cured her hypertension, she took the BB gun, the pellet gun off the table. So the only thing left is the rubber band. And so that's how minimal I think the risk of her total cholesterol going up by 20 points was. I think it's, I think it's background noise. I don't think it really means anything to, uh, she's, she's decreased her risk so much by fixing the diabetes and the hypertension that the cholesterol is a non-issue in my opinion mm -hmm. and the reason i bring this topic up to um my mum listens to the show and she's um she's going through something similar with her family doctor um where she lives locally where originally they were worried about some of her glucose numbers got those down but then her cholesterol went um I'm, i don't know the u.s conversions but um it's about it's in the six millimolar range uh, for mm -hmm. total cholesterol, mm -hmm. and she's a female in her seventies. And I'm trying to explain to, and the doctor's now freaking out because she's in the sixes. And but now she's as you said, she's got rid of any sort of risk of the glucose uh, control issue. And I'm trying to explain, but you know the bigger risk here is you don't you can't it's not sustainable to have high glucose numbers. We've got people who li who live with high cholesterol numbers. It's it's a very gray area. It's mixed, but the glucose is pretty set standard. You don't. It, there's no benefit to someone having very high glucose numbers. That's at right. All. There there is no Jason Fung or uh, William Davis or Ken Berry out there who's saying, "Oh, actually, you want your hemoglobin A1C to be as high as possible. That's actually good for you." There's nobody out there saying that, but there are multiple doctors saying, "You know what?" When you go back and look at the studies about cholesterol, it's actually backwards. But yet somehow the recommendations came out, oh, you need to have a very low cholesterol. But when you actually look at the studies, people with higher cholesterols lived longer and died less frequently than the people with the lowest cholesterol readings. Now, that to me, that's not ambiguous. That's not gray. That's black and white. You want your cholesterol, your total cholesterol number to be high. You'll live longer. That's what that's what two or three very large, very meaningful medical studies have shown. And, you know, I'm sure you've done this game long enough to know that some medical studies really mean nothing. They're small. They're not performed properly. And they're just it, it's a silly waste of time to even mention the study. You muddy the water and you don't really add any meaningful information with that study if it's not done properly. But I'm talking about studies with tens of thousands of participants 
that were done very rigorously because what they were trying to do, they were trying to prove that the lower your cholesterol number, the longer you lived. Because you understand that would that would make Pfizer and Merck even more billions of dollars because they could say, oh, we need to lower the guidelines even lower. Everybody needs to take a statin drug, right? But when they crunched the data, it didn't show that. It showed the exact opposite. And so they just did one of the huge studies. They just didn't publish it. They just tossed it, didn't publish it. And it's only been recently found out that that huge study was done and, and they didn't publish that data. And so, yeah, I, I think you'll see over the next five to 10 years that the lipid or the cholesterol theory of heart disease slowly and quietly just disappears. All the experts that that championed it are going to just slowly back away from it quietly. You won't see any public retractions. You won't see any public apologies. They'll just pretend like they've never heard of it before. And they'll, they'll, they'll jump onto some other dragon to slay and they'll act like, Oh yeah, you know, the cholesterol is not really an issue at all. So you guys will, we'll see how strong my predictive powers are over the next five to 10 years. But I predict in five years, your, your doctor won't even be speaking to your mother about her cholesterol levels. It'll be a non-issue. Mm. I hope so. It'll be a, it'll be like talking about the color of the the petunias in her front yard. It, ha- it will have nothing to do with her her overall health. Yeah, but uh, th- uh, another reason I brought that up is because of I want people to understand maybe sort of the pressures that as a practicing doctor that you might be under by either your medical association or um, your concern for medical legal or something. There's always I always try to relate. There's when someone also says certain things, it, it they might sort of be pressurized to say certain things. Do you mm-hmm. think that happens oh. as a majority in, with your fellow colleagues? Uh, well, I don't think there's a literal arm-twisting pressure to say those things. But I think there's an unspoken social pressure among physicians. Uh, we, have to, we have to uphold something called the uh, community standard of care. So if every doctor in my community prescribes statins for a cholesterol level over 200, the, the American reading, then if I'm the one doctor in town who doesn't do that, then my, yeah, the medical board can, can, uh, censure me or even put me on probation or fine me for that. Even if, and it, so I, and I use the analogy of the leeches. If we went back in time 200 years and I was a practicing physician back then and everybody was using leeches for everything they were bleeding people for every diagnosis right and we know now that to, to, to do that for every diagnosis is ridiculous it make it makes it's not based on anything it's just superstition but if i was the one doctor in the community who was not bleeding people for sore throats and for diabetes and for even for anemia they would bleed people you see the the ignorance in that mm-hmm. I would be censured for that. I could I could lose my license for not bleeding people who had anemia because that was the standard of care at that time. And so, yeah, many docs, they might see the, the logic behind what I'm saying, but um, I don't know if they're ju- I don't I don't know their motivation. I can't see into their heart. They're maybe too busy to look into it. Maybe they just don't want to, you know, buck the, the system or mm. muddy the water. But I've never had any problem bucking the system if I think the system's wrong. That's kind of in my nature. And so I'm happy if they if they want to make a martyr out of me because I'm I'm speaking the truth and I can present these medical studies that back up what I'm saying. I mean, if they want to make a martyr out of me, then I guess go for it. I'm yeah. not really afraid of that because I'm very, very 
sure that what I'm telling my patients is in their best medical interest. And it is going to help them live the longest, happiest, healthiest life possible because that's my goal. I'm sure you must have a lot of smiley faces when they finish talking with you. <laughs> I do. I do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then I also have many more smiling faces when they come back in six months and they've lost 25 pounds and they're off two medicines and they're able to, to make love to their wife again, which they haven't been able to do for five years because their diabetes was so out of control. So, yeah, I love smiley faces because they usually mean we had a positive result. <laughs> That's a, that, that would be a good big case study we'd have to do with hundreds of thousands of people. Mm -hmm. More people that smile, mm -hmm. does that tend to mean a good result? <laughs> <laughs> Either that or they're high, right? One of the two. You don't know which. <laughs> you haven't got medical marijuana done in Tennessee yet, side note. Not yet. Not yet. But okay. within two to three years, it'll probably be. Okay. Um, okay, back on track. But um, – so I, I did notice on your practice website that you seem to have a very keen interest in um, hormones. Is that right? Mm, yeah. I do. Um, and I, it, it's, it's not the, the, the focus of my practice, but it, it is a large percentage of what I do. And I, I, because, you know, when we, when we talk about obesity and diabetes, those are also hormonal conditions. They're caused by an abnormality in hormones. And so there are so many other conditions that are caused by uh, hormone levels that haven't been optimized. So I don't just optimize the insulin level and the cortisol level and the thyroid hormone level. I try to work on all the hormones. And because I think that's how you have the healthiest, happiest human is if all their hormones are optimized. Mm -hmm. And I, I use the analogy in my practice with patients if you go out uh, to, to dinner tonight to listen to a band, and it's a five-piece band, and the drummer is just wonderful, but the guitarist sucks, right? And the, and the singer is drunk and passes out. Even though the drummer is excellent, it's still not going to be a good night of music, right? And so the hormones of the human body are just the same way. So if I get someone, and through a ketogenic diet, I correct their insulin, but yet their, th their thyroid is, is suboptimal and their testosterone is suboptimal, then they're still not going to in any way be optimized as far as their health goes. And so one by one over the years, I've picked up more and more of the hormones and how they affect the human body. And I've realized that you really can't be your ultimate self if you don't have every member of that five-piece band playing optimally. Because you do talk about hormones too, also in your book, I believe you have. Uh, I do, yeah. yeah. And um, it is it hormones always come up, uh, especially when people go on a restrictive diet or and even on a ketogenic diet. Or I don't, I don't. This will be an interesting one for you. How you deal with women who go on a lower carb ketogenic diet because the thyroid issue always seems to crop up. Um, yeah. And I've heard of that. I've read about that. I've read, you know, the other uh, kind of experts in the field and what they say about that. But I'll tell you, um, I haven't seen any of that in my practice. The only thing I see in my practice is is women feeling better and losing weight and uh, their numbers improving. Sometimes I'll have a woman who's already on a thyroid replacement hormone who has, I have to go up on her dose one notch, one, one little increment. So what? Big deal. We've, we've stopped her two diabetes medicines and we've stopped her cholesterol medicine and we've stopped her blood pressure medicine. So I'm happy to increase the one thing she still takes by 10% 
to keep her levels within optimal levels. But as far as causing thyroid shutdown or any of that sort of thing, I haven't seen any of that at all. And I also have a, a large patient population who practices intermittent fasting. And I haven't had any trouble with my female patients uh, with intermittent fasting either. I don't. I I think that the ketogenic diet, the paleo uh, diet, and intermittent fasting are very ancestral. I think we've, as a as a species, we've been doing that for hundreds of thousands of years. I think that none of our bodies has a problem with fasting, whether it's a male body or a female body, or even a a, a juvenile body. I think we've all all of our ancestors fasted at one time or another, either for religious reasons or even further back in time than that, for just obvious reasons. There was no food for three days. So you fasted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our bodies don't run down like a wind-up toy. Each day that you fast, you get worse and worse. You actually get better and better. Your growth hormone goes up. Your repair hormones go up. Autophagy sets in and you start getting rid of suboptimal tissues in your body. All this stuff has been going on in the human species for millennia. So, no, I haven't really seen any thyroid problems from women eating the proper human diet. Because that's what we're really talking about here, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And then uh, another hot topic at the moment is um, the carnivore diets or all meat diets. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. s- I see a lot of men um, feel they're enjoying that diet because they're tos- they feel like testosterone. I, I don't know if they're testing it, but... Have you, I mean, you're in Tennessee, that's it. I've, I've got to get my geography right here. That is south, isn't it? In the southeast, yeah, yeah, southeast, right. So that's exactly you've got a right. lot of good steaks down there, don't you? We do, yeah. We're not, uh, uh, Chicago and Texas are probably best known for steaks in the U.S., but we have a pretty good steak here and lots of good barbecue. And I don't, I don't currently have any patients who practice carnivory. I don't practice carnivory, but I'll tell you right now, I'm not entirely opposed to it. As a as a theory, you know, I, I follow Sean Baker, the orthopedic surgeon on Twitter, and he's been a carnivore for several years now, and he's 50, and he's routinely breaking uh, records, age-appropriate records for, for all these different athletic events. And so, you know, he, I don't, he doesn't eat any vegetables ever. He, he never eats any fruits. He eats meat. That's it. He's a carnivore. I don't think he takes supplements. He does, at least he says he doesn't. But yet he's he's uh, head and shoulders above everyone else his age when it comes to athletic prowess. And so how's that possible if that's not a viable option? Mm-hmm. And so I'm not opposed to carnivory. I don't recommend it to anyone, but I'm not opposed to it. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. And yeah this- I think it's a, I think for some people, it's probably the ideal option. I think probably it depends on your genetics, where your ancestors came from. But I'll bet some of us wouldn't do so great on a on a carnivore diet. But I bet some of us would do better than we ever hoped to do on a carnivore diet. But that remains to be seen. I think definitely that's the kind of things that we should be researching, not whether you should take 40 milligrams or 80 milligrams of a torvastatin to get your cholesterol down and spend $10 billion on that study. We should be studying plants versus animals. Fruits are no, you know, fruits are no. What's the difference? But that's the big studies we need to be doing. But no one's going to do that because there's no money to be made. Yeah, and I think you know it's nice to hear this because it just it resonates the words that you give in your book about your open mindedness, that you're willing to listen to something and then sort of make an informed consent decision. Go, oh, let me let me see if there is some research behind that, or 
does it make maybe some physiological sense? Or I have seen some case studies related to this, and you know, you can make the the yin and the yang, the good and the bad, out of something. Um, right. It's always and refreshing. I can to understand. I can understand some doctors' hesitance to recommend something. Like they, I could see a doctor saying, "Well, I don't want to recommend the ketogenic diet because there's no research that supports it." And I understand that line of reasoning. But at the same time, that line of reasoning ought to also apply when you're saying, hey, you should eat a low, a low fat, high carb diet and eat lots of whole grains. Well, where's the research on that, Bubba? Show me the research that you're basing that on. And then you get that 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 wide eyed stare like, oh, I have ne- I've never thought of that. Yeah, there's no research to support either one. So what we have to do as doctors, just like we have to do as humans we're all fumbling around in the dark. We have to do what makes sense and we have to do what makes sense for that individual patient and I and and recommend what we think is going to give them the best outcome. And so, you know, there are, there there are no studies proving that the ketogenic diet is the best diet in the world. That's true. But there are also no studies proving any other diets any better than the ketogenic diet. It, it, the studies were never set up to to run that way. So we really don't know. And so, you know, to be perfectly correct, the doctor shouldn't recommend any diet at all. When a patient asks, what should I eat? The doctor should say, how the hell should I know? There's no research. I don't know. But no doctor's ever going to say that, right? And so we tend to say what we believe is going to work. Yeah. And so it's come, uh, earlier on you were saying how it sounds like you you like to have a sort, sort of a system in place where you, if you have a patient who's got a lot of metabolic problems, they're very obese, and it's kind of like emergency care now because you're you're sick and you're needing to take lots of chronic medications and things aren't good. It kind of sounds like you like to do a bit of like a ketogenic type diet initially and then you transition onto a paleo low carb kind of way of eating as a sustainable maintenance plan. Is that am I am I getting that right? That's one pathway that they could follow. Yeah, because some people love the ketogenic diet and the and I don't I personally I've heard some experts say, Oh, it's not a long term, it's not good long term. I don't see any research that shows me that. I haven't seen any case studies that show me that. I think if you enjoy the ketogenic diet, I think you can eat it long term if it works for you. But a lot of people, when they're when they're keto, trying to lose the weight and get their numbers corrected, they miss the berries and they miss the fruit and they miss a little honey and they miss the agave. And so I think when they meet their goals, I give them the liberty. Hey, if you want to go back to paleo, I think that's fine. But we'll obviously we're going to keep an eye on your numbers, and mm-hmm. if they ever start to creep up again, then we'll go back keto until we get your numbers fixed. And then if you want to stick to keto, that's fine. I think that's perfectly safe. But if yeah, I give patients that liberty if they want to go back to the to the paleo ancestral primal type diet. I think that's perfectly fine, but it's not a requirement. I mean, I don't require them to do either one. I, I just tell them I think that's probably okay. Mm-hmm but we'll keep an eye on your numbers. And again, it sounds like you've sort of got like a toolbox and so you've got options here and you can play around with different sure. things for different people. Sure, absolutely. And that's yeah. why when I introduce you, you talk about personalizing care, um, which, yeah, is always nice to know that we are all N equals one physiology. We're all unique in, in this world and uh, we all present in different situations. So it's good to know that someone's a, willing to help us for our our bodies that's what people look for i i think they that's, expect that's that what in people a deserve yeah, yeah. well yeah. that's what they deserve in a doctor mm. um and so i'm also thinking here what with some of the other lies that uh, we've talked a lot about diet here but um and then the the cholesterol lie um 
and you do go through quite a few in your book. What's what's another sort of favorite one that you think you'd like to to highlight to people? We could talk about the dairy lie. Um, we could talk about the um, sunlight the lie. We could talk about uh, the estrogen in women lie. There's there's so many that that, are, that I have in the book, so many that I didn't put in the book because there's too many. The book would have been too thick. And I was trying to keep this kind of a starter book so that people without a lot of medical knowledge or experience could pick this up and go, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Oh, OK, that's interesting. Without, you know, it, it seeming overwhelming. Um, it's easy for a doctor because, you know, we like to talk and we like to we like to voice our opinion. So it's easy for us to write a hundred and fifty thousand word book. But who's going to read that? Who mm. wants to sit down? You know, the average person who really needs the information is going to be completely intimidated by that big fat book with 82 pages of references in the back. And so I tried not to write that book. But, uh, yeah, we can talk about any of those, whichever one. I, I think the dairy lie, I, I enjoy talking about that because I think it, once you think about it, it's, it makes so much sense that you really – it's silly to recommend anybody to drink low-fat milk. It's ridiculous. And so we can talk about the dairy. What about that? Let's talk about the dairy line. Yeah, well, I love it that you said because it's I I feel so sorry when I go to a local coffee shop um, and it's just like skim milk or low fat milk that people are drinking mm -hmm. as lattes, and so they're mm -hmm. drinking this massive cup of just franken milk. It's just like watery mm -hmm. white stuff, and. Yeah. I'd love to know, could you say to anyone what might happen to their glucose or any oh, yeah. sort of markers that happen after drinking yeah. skim milk or low-fat milk? Yeah, absolutely. So the only thing left in skim milk is the lactose, the sugar, right, and the potentially inflammatory proteins that are in cow's breast milk because that's what it is. I like to call it that because it, it freaks people out a little bit and makes <laughs> them understand what we're talking about. You're drinking the breast milk of a cow, so that's kind of that's kind of weird. That's the Tennessee that truth. Way. That's exactly right. That's right. We we speak it, and so when you get that skim milk latte, you're getting sugar and inflammatory proteins. That's what you're getting in that, and so your blood sugar is immediately going to spike when you start drinking that, and then that's going to cause your insulin to spike. And when your insulin spikes, that's going to grab all that sugar that's in your the glucose in your bloodstream and try to put it somewhere. So it's going to store it in the muscles as a, a triacyl, as a triglyceride. That's what your body does with sugars. It changes them into fats. And it'll put that on your booty and put it in your belly. And worst of all, it'll put it in your liver or your pancreas. And that's when true disease really starts is when you start storing that fat in places where fat shouldn't be. And so you've taken out the fat of the milk, which is actually the least bad part of the milk, and also the part of the milk that could help kind of meter and temper what the glucose does in your body. You've actually taken the good part of the milk out and left the two bad parts. And so for years and years, we were taught that skim is the healthiest way to go, no matter how bad it tastes or how, how much lacking it is in taste. But yeah, skim milk is really of all the dairy products, that is the absolute worst that you can ingest. Mm -hmm. And I just look at how much must be ingested, especially in coffee shops in the Western world, because that's what they serve. And um, exactly, yeah. yeah. This, this is so. This is what the majority of people are getting exposed to. Um, and more and more in America, at least locally here, 
um, coffee shops have have heavy cream or whipping cream or double cream. And then more, so a few of them are starting to have a good grass-fed butter that you can throw in your coffee as well. Haven't seen any with coconut oil in there yet, but I'm still working on it. We'll, we'll work on that. Okay. Well, that's that's good but, to know. So, um, yeah, even some people are sort of taking that concept, but they're even willing to throw some butter in their coffee. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it's it's not widespread yet. It's not mainstream, but it's moving that way. Mm-hmm. So we, when we talk about dairy, you're talking about drinking the breast milk of a cow. And so let's talk about mammals. So we, we're going to pull back again to that ancestral evolutionary thing. Why do mammals give their babies milk? And no other no other animal species does that but mammals. Also, another thing we know about mammals is that mammals rule the earth currently, right? We're, we, we run the earth. So how's that possible? Well, it's because we have such big brains. Perhaps those two things are related. The reasons mam- mammals develop the ability to feed their babies milk is so that their babies could grow and gain weight as quickly as possible because our big brains make our heads almost too big to fit through the birth canal. And so we have to be born almost, well, prematurely. You know, humans can't even walk for a year or two. So we're born prematurely so we don't get stuck in the birth canal. But then our mother has, she has to have some tool that she can use to help us develop and grow our nerves and grow our brains and gain weight as quickly as possible. You know, the average cow gains about 800 to 1,000 pounds in one year. That's a lot of weight. And the way they do that is by drinking milk. They don't do it by eating bacon or eating, uh, you know, but I mean, they do it by drinking milk. That's how they gain the weight. And so I tell my patients, they're like, you mean I can't have any milk? And my reply is, if you'd like to gain weight as fast as possible, drink milk because that's what it's for. And then, and it's not the fat in the milk that makes you gain the weight. It's the sugar and it's the protein. That's what makes you gain the weight. And so of all the dairy, I, you know, I, I, I tell most of my patients, you can still have heavy cream. You can still have full fat cheeses. You can have butter and, and maybe some, some good uh, real, actual real yogurt is probably fine as well. And then the next question always is, well, how come cheese and yogurt how come they're okay well here's why the microbe that converted the liquid milk into yogurt consumed almost all the sugar right that's what it ate as it did its job that's what it was out there for was to eat the sugar and in the process of eating the sugar its enzymes bent the protein molecules that's why yogurt's no longer a liquid that's why it's now a solid is the protein is the shape of the proteins have changed and so you've got a product that's full fat that the sugar's almost gone and that the protein molecules have been bent into a much less inflammatory protein molecule. Therefore, yogurt's okay for most people. Some people it's still not, but for most it is. The same way with a good, hard, real cheese. The microbe that turned the milk into cheese ate all, this, ate all the sugar, right? And it also bent the protein molecule to turn the liquid milk into the hard cheese. And then you're left with all the fat. So again, Cheese is, is a pretty darn good food. Now, some people have a you know a, a conscientious objection objection to dairy, and that's fine. I understand that you don't have to have dairy to be paleo or or keto. You don't have to have dairy at all. I have a few patients who are completely dairy free. I think that's fine. I personally think it's completely fine also to have heavy cream and have full fat cheese and have full fat yogurt. I think those things are fine 
And I don't think they'll cause any of your numbers to go the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, that's it. It is a good topic to bring up because dairy, it is it is a uh, one of those foods that can really trigger an allergen in certain people and cause a lot of mess up and mm-hmm. there's such a variety of dairy in this world too um mm-hmm. i must admit uh, i mean i live where i live now um the dairy isn't played with much but i uh, when i've traveled to the u.s and i've looked at some of the dairy there and i think wow the the food here is played with with just way too much it's uh, it is it's it really altered. is i totally agree yeah and, and totally that's why i think that, so yeah. many people must have these big reactions because it's not doesn't seem like real food anymore certain foods um that they can get hold of i think i think that's part of the story i think probably the biggest part of the story is the inflammatory proteins these proteins were meant to be consumed by another species mm-hmm. right and so we've it's become socially acceptable to to drink cow breast milk and and to a lesser extent goat breast milk right but when you but why, how come we don't drink cat breast milk or dog breast milk when you even say that it just sounds ridiculous <laughs> and, and gross right like I don't, i'm not drinking dog milk how's that any worse than cow milk it's not worse it's not worse right it's just not socially acceptable but the proteins in dog and cat milk were meant for that specific species the proteins in human breast milk are far different than the protein concentrations and amounts and types in cow milk they're, mm-hmm. they're very different things. And so I think the, the huge majority of why people, people are, are lactose intolerant or intolerant to some of the other, some of the proteins in milk is because it's not for our species. Some people's ancestors have drank milk for hundreds or thousands of years, and so they've pretty much gotten okay with it. But I, it, I, it's my theory that even, you know, the Caucasian branch of, of humanity that it seems like we're perfectly fine. Because when I was in high school, in my teenage years, I played football and basketball, and I was I was just as bony as you can be, and I was trying to gain weight. And so I would drink almost a gallon of milk a day. And I, I wasn't lactose intolerant. I could tolerate the lactose fine. I, I didn't have any other terrible uh, inflammatory reactions to that. I also didn't, I didn't gain any weight because – I was I was drinking whole milk and half and half and heavy cream because I thought that extra fat would help me gain weight. What I should have been drinking was skim milk and I would have gained some weight maybe. <laughs> but my point is is that I did have some reactions to that milk, but they were subtle and they were not stomach or gastrointestinal reactions. So I didn't put two and two together until I actually stopped dairy as a college student. So in high school, I was perpetually had an allergic rhinitis all the time. I was always like that. I could, I would always had a stopped up nose. I was always sneezing and always snotty and always stopped up. And, and so I didn't attribute that to milk. I attributed that to, to pollen and allergies and dog hair. Right. And I also always had terrible dandruff as a teenager. And I would use all the shampoos. I even got prescription shampoos from the doctor and never once did my doctor say, you know, Son, that might just be a dairy allergy because nobody made that connection because it does. It seems too far removed from the dairy. When I went to college, I had no access. I didn't have a fridge in my dorm room. And so I didn't drink hardly any milk for the first year I was there. And one day it occurred to me, you know, I haven't sneezed in months. 
I haven't blown my nose because used to when I was a teenager, this is gross, but it's a true story. Like I would have uh, tissue strategically placed in every room of the house and in the, the pockets of my coats. And I would have a rolled up tissue in each pocket of my jeans so that I would never be without a tissue because I was going to sneeze and then be snotty. That was going to happen yeah. multiple times during my day. Right. So then I, I was in college and I, I looked up one day and thought, you know, I haven't had stopped at nose in months. And also my dandruff is gone. And at the time I, I was too young, I didn't make the connection, but looking back now, it was absolutely the day I stopped drinking milk on a daily basis is the day those two things started getting better. And now that I never drink liquid, liquid dairy, liquid milk, I could, I could go into a barn and I could pitchfork hay all day long and I wouldn't sneeze a time. It wouldn't bother me at all. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and maybe I have one flake a day instead of, it looked like it snowed every time I touched my hair when I was in high school, those things are gone now. I don't suffer from those anymore. And so my point is, I think a lot of people suffer from complications of dairy and they don't even realize that's what it is. Because it's two or three steps too removed for either them or for their doctor to make the connection. Hmm. And so they're like, I don't know why I've got this terrible damn dandruff, but I hate it. But I'm going to have another glass of milk because that obviously can't be the cause. Hmm. And it just shows again you know? how powerful what we eat or what we consume has yes. on our body. And if yes. anywhere, instead of a prescription medication for like your, your dandruff, just try, try that for 30 days and see what happens. Absolutely. And that, I think that, you know, there is this huge billion dollar uh, corporation, not a corporation, but um, a, economy where we try to put things on our skin and put things on our hair. And, you know, it's the, I think it's the Western way. When there's a problem, we try to add something. That's kind of the Western way of thinking. Oh, there's a problem here. I should add something to this equation to fix that problem. And when it comes to the human body and human nutrition and human disease, very, very often the correct uh, math problem you want to be doing is subtraction. You want to be taking something away. You want to be removing something. That's how you fix those problems. And so instead of adding an expensive pill or an expensive lotion or cream or shampoo, we should be thinking, what is in this equation that I need to subtract? And in my case, I spent hundreds of dollars on uh, allergy medications and on dandruff medications and adding all those things helped very little, if any at all. But if I had just known, if I'd have had a wise old doctor who said, why don't you subtract the dairy and for a month and see what happens, I would have been cured of those two conditions and saved thousands of dollars. Hmm. But that's, that's that currently, currently not the way we think in Western society. We think we should add something to fix a problem. And in some cases, you know, in industrial problems and in, in economic problems, that's often the case. But in, in human nutrition and human health problems, it's often the case we need to subtract something. Yeah. I, I like that yeah. wisdom that you're sharing there. That's uh, those are some really good points that for people to take home with. Um, what can you take away that might be inflaming or irritating your body today? Mm -hmm. And just see, just <laughs> test it. Yeah. The human body is the most amazing thing that I have ever known and ever studied, it really is smarter than all of us. It's way smarter than the average doctor. Your body, and so uh, I'm going to make a lot of people mad when I say these things, but your body doesn't need a cleanse. You don't need a liver cleanse. You don't need a kidney cleanse. You don't need a colon cleanse. That's adding. You don't need to do that. What you need to do is stop putting crap in your body 
and your body will fix the problem immediately. Your body's like the ultimate self-cleaning oven that has ever been in existence on the planet. Your liver can clean itself within hours if you'll just stop poisoning, poisoning it with high fructose corn syrup and stop poisoning it with alcohol. Your liver will, will can bounce back more than any other organ that, that, that exists. But a liver cleanse is not the solution. The solution is to stop putting crap in the system. And that's very hard for some people to, to hear and understand. It's almost like we have to shift their paradigm a little bit. Like, yeah, I know you want to add something, but stop that. Let's subtract something, okay? Because it's going to be cheaper and easier. And in the end, the take-home message is, your liver really doesn't need your damn help. It just needs you to stop mucking things up. That's what your liver needs you to do. It doesn't need you to go buy a $300 cleanse. It needs you to just stop poisoning it with the slow poisons that you put in your body every day. Well, I think you're going to have to do some talks at the local primary school to in the maths class to, to highlight how nice it is to subtract things. And really, if yes. you're going to learn anything in maths, that's really important, that minus sign. <laughs> yes yes absolutely so uh ken um i mean there's so much more we could talk about because there's so many other topics that you've got in your book and i love all these tennessee truth bombs that you've been dropping on us um <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how can people keep following you keep in touch with you and this is time to even mention your book again oh god so the book is available on amazon.com uh in paperback and in kindle versions and uh, it's it's available in most countries. It's available on Amazon in, in the UK and Australia and Canada uh, and even in uh, France, Germany, Spain, India. You can get it anywhere in the world from whichever Amazon you happen to log on to in your country in both paperback and Kindle. And I'm working on the Audible and I'm, I'm kicking around the idea of doing the Audible version myself. Don't you think I should do that? Shouldn't it be in my voice? Oh, yeah. That's, Tennessee voice. Yeah, that's, <laughs> Tennessee truth bombs have to come with the Tennessee that's voice. Exactly, exactly <laughs> right. And then also I'm working on uh, currently getting a version in Spanish and getting a, a version in Hindi because those are the next, next two languages I'm going to try to reach out and, and help. Uh, I have a Facebook page, which is uh, Kendi Barry D is the handle. And if you just search Kendi Barry MD on, on Facebook, I think you'll find me. And then on YouTube, my YouTube handle is Kendi Barry MD without the dot. And if you just search, um, if you search fatty pancreas on YouTube, I'm the number one video because I'm the only doctor in the world, evidently, who currently thinks that the depositing fat in your pancreas is a big deal. I'm not sure why I'm the only doctor who thinks that's that's really something important we should worry about. And so just search YouTube for Dr. Barry or for Fatty Pancreas, yeah. and you'll find me straight away. And those are the two. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and everything else, but I tend to concentrate my effort on Facebook and YouTube because I can help the most people that way. Okay, good to know. And I will link to all of these references in the show notes um, uh, thank on, you. on your episode page. So anyone listening, go to your episode page um, or anyone who's watching this on YouTube click the link to go to uh, Dr. Berry's episode page and you'll, you'll get the other links. Um, Ken, thank you so much for coming on today. And uh, yeah, I really did love all the, the, the Tennessee uh, truth bombs that came from this today. This has been an absolute pleasure. Let's do this again one day. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.